why Harry Bailey went to war. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Hello and welcome to episode 121, a jingly jangly, well maybe not jangly, just jingly, a jingly Christmas edition of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other um, elves as masterpieces. I'm not an elf, I take that back. I am the jolly present-giving presenter of the podcast, and I am joined as ever by Krampus. I'm an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all fair. (laughs) I think you'd gravitate towards Mr. Potter. Um, So we are discussing some Christmas classics. What what have I done? Realising this would come out on the 23rd of December. (laughs) You brought it on yourself, Roger. Yes, yes, it's all my fault. (laughs) Well, now we'll find out how many humbugs Roger eats every Christmas, because we're going to take a deep dive into some black and white, almost contemporaneous Christmas classics. Mm. One of which wasn't designed to be a Christmas film at all, particularly the other of which was, (laughs) but they, they lied about it in the marketing because they released it in May. I, well, yeah, that's an interesting thing I read. So the films we're discussing would be Miracle on 34th Street, the original, and It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and yeah, Miracle on 34th Street. They they had the idea that if you released a film at Christmas, uh, it wouldn't sell. So they released it in May uh, and didn't mention on the any of the marketing that it was anything to do with Christmas. Um, and, and the Santa in it um, is a tiny little figure between between our two heroes. Um, this is not the case on the modern DVD cover. No, no, it's all changed now. We have, um, uh, and by our heroes, Edmund Gwen plays, um, well, let's call him Chris Kringle uh, for the sake of argument. Um, we have the wonderful Maureen O'Hara. And, well, one of the uh, great swashbucklers of the 50, uh, 40s and 50s. <laughs> and John Payne, who I didn't start with the epithet, the, the wonderful, but we, we can go on to that. <laughs> this is the story of a, well, an old man who gets a job working at the real Macy's. I was surprised. This is, so this is the first time I've seen Miracle on 34th Street, though mm-hmm. I knew the the basic plot just so, about. Same here on both, on both counts. Um, it's the real Macy's. Um, they, they were quite happy to have themselves in this film. I don't think you'd do that nowadays. You wouldn't have... Well, they, they, they apparently... Ah, yes, I, I have heard of the remake because they didn't give permission for it to be used to the remake because they reckoned, you know, here is this classic. We're happy to be associated with that. Don't don't go diluting it. Well, that's probably a fair a fair point. But I don't know. It, it surprised me because the, the Macy's um, executives all come across as capitalist money grabbers <laughs> and so i wasn't sure it was the best um oh but they're willing to learn they are willing to learn so the the, the old man who calls himself chris kringle is recruited by um maureen o'hara doris is yeah. that right doris walker um who is shock a divorcee that was balls out right there, wasn't it? She was a divorced woman. and um, This is why the Catholic he... Legion of Decency gave it a B. <laughs> because she's not Satan incarnate. She does have to be a bit of a miserable um, uh, person for, like, the first half. She doesn't. She's entirely well, driven by cold logic and doesn't have any time for fantasies or... 
imagination. If only there was someone could teach us all how to imagine stuff. Yeah, uh, well, I'll, I'll come back to the, the way her character's treated. <laughs> it turns out Chris Kringle continues to insist that he is Santa. He comes up with a brilliant marketing strategy, which is if a kid asks for a toy that Macy's don't stock, he points them down the road to Gimbal's or various other stores that are basically haven't survived into the 21st century. So I don't recognise most of them. But I think they were real stores at the time, or at least some of them were. I mean, the, the only reason I've heard of Macy's, I think, is because of their uh, Thanksgiving parade. Which, which features heavily in this uh, uh, Indeed, it, it's a real one. They got permission to film round it. Which, yeah, which quite... basically meant they had to get everything first shot. I would have paid more attention if I thought it just was a pretty parade. Um, but I didn't realise it was the real parade. Um, but that's, uh, that's a nice touch. Anyway, it comes to a head. Uh, Chris Kringle gets examined by not a psychologist um, or psychiatrist, but the the kind of Macy's in in house store. I don't know what he is um, evaluator. Well, let, let, let's members. face it: in the real world, he would be the guy who says, "No, no, there is nothing wrong with you. You're not suffering from mental strain. You're just lazy. Get back to work or get fired." <laughs> um, and nowadays, I, I think, yeah, to be but... fair, that's not wildly off the characterisation we see here. <laughs> well, nowadays we have HR departments to say that only much more nicely and less obviously. So um, we've progressed, I guess. It ends up that um, in order to release himself from an institution, Chris Kringle has to prove that he is, in fact, as he has insisted all along, Santa Claus. And therefore is not mad for having insisted that he is. Which, basically the whole film I was just thinking, <laughs> you can't fool me, there is no sanity clause, um, but <laughs> that's not this film. But fortunately he has the uh, assistance of a young attorney, who just happens to uh, live across the hall from Doris. That is the creepiest seduction technique, as well. I don't know if things have changed. I, I don't think he moved in deliberately, he certainly has been making friends with her young daughter. Deliberately to get, in, to get uh, into uh, the... I don't know, the apartment, at least, of her hot single mum, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, questionable behaviour. Also, I just, she just, I don't know, things have changed a lot, but uh, just letting your daughter go off with a random stranger next door. Uh, well, perhaps there's an exception if your daughter is a young Natalie Wood. Well... Um, poor Natalie would. Um, yeah, and th- this is you know obviously before she got particularly famous. You know she would go on to revel without a cause and various other things. Sadly, here pretty much in moppet mode. Yeah, I mean she's not she's not an annoying child actor. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't see this performance and think, my goodness, this this person is going to be an amazing actor. I didn't realise it was Natalie Wood until afterwards. Yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> think she had a great future um, ahead of her. Um, and we have this, uh, so I, I mean, Maureen O'Hara's great. I, we talked about this a bit off air, but John Payne just is not a, a match for her. In, Sack in your life. agent, man. I mean, he, yeah. he, he's, he's a perfectly competent, you know, comic leading actor. Mm. You, you, I, I don't know much about him. I haven't, haven't only seen him in anything else, but I'm sure he had a significant career just looking at the filmography. But you're putting him across against Maureen O'Hara. <laughs> he's, he's a shadow yeah. puppet. 
whenever they're on camera together. I genuinely thought he was he was like the comic relief uh, for about half the film until it really is. He, he is happens to be a lawyer, so he's the one that um, yeah is um, defending the case against Chris Kringle. Um, and, now, and, and simultaneously wrecking his career in the process. <laughs> yes, he he gets fired from his um, uh, promising. Uh, career i don't know he probably makes enough publicity out of this that he yeah the, the suggestion is that he was already thinking about you know setting up in practice on his own anyway uh, this just kicks him into doing it a bit sooner and we have i guess so we talked about maureen o'hara a bit we talked about john payne and natalie wood haven't talked about edward edmund gwen as santa um mm. he's he is very good i mean he he does it's um particularly in this day and age it's hard to do kind of friendly and sort of childlike and wise and wonderful without coming across as a bit creepy but i i think he certainly does manage it very well hmm. he, and certainly... one gets the feeling that uh, as comes up for discussion in, in the film um he may or may not be mad but he's certainly not dangerous well, yes, except that he beats someone up <laughs> during the film. Um, mm, the, the, the way I see it, and I, I'm thinking I, perhaps it's because I've seen a lot of film comedies of this era, the way that is presented to me is it is basically a, a playful knock on the head, as you would see in Stooges or whatever. It, it's, yes. not, it's not meant to be serious. And then the, the, the implication is that, that uh, his victim, the not-psychiatrist, is faking it all. Yeah, except that he's got a visible... Um, lump on his head. Mm. I mean, cranial trauma, that could have been... Mm. Anyway, uh, uh, but aside from his uh, tendency to violence... So he was he was right all along, um, I will point out, um, that Granville was right all along when he gets beaten up. Um, we'd, so it felt to me... I knew there was a court scene, and I knew he had to sort of prove whether he was Santa or not. And to, a, to some extent, I was just sort of waiting for that, for the early part of the film. Mm. I wasn't. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't charmed by it in a way that I I often am by uh, '40s black and white films, honestly. And so it didn't quite suck me in. Uh, there, there's something about the look, and I, I don't know the proper terminology for this, but it just looks like, oh yeah, okay, it's a standard studio comedy with very occasional outdoor shots. Yeah, it, it has no, that feel of very much by the numbers to me. It's sort of flat or maybe that's not the right word but it's not there's not a lot of exciting cinematography i mean that's interesting because it starts with someone walking down the street in new york like a mm. almost like a steady cam shot except it couldn't be a steady cam shot because it's uh, pretty steady that that felt to me like a, a certain amount of oh boy i love this town yeah um it could have been out of um the sweet smell of success, almost. <laughs> uh, but uh, after that, so it starts that way, and it, it starts with the Thanksgiving parade. It doesn't really do a lot dynamically after that. I, I agree. It doesn't. Whether it, it may have been groundbreaking, but it didn't. It didn't feel like it cinematographically, which is a word. But w- we have the court scene. I have to. Say, I wasn't disappointed by the court scene. I particularly like. I don't know. There's something about faces that seems to come in and out of fashion. A lot of the characters here have got faces that you just don't see nowadays, like mm. um, like um, Jean Lockhart, who's who's the judge, or William Frawley, um, who was in uh, oh, what was he in? Um, Hogan's Heroes, maybe. But it, it, they've got these kind of I don't know, Wiseacre 
faces. It's kind of something about their expression. Maybe it's just the 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 black and white or so. But I don't know. I particularly enjoyed their very expressionistic acting. Um, uh, so I, it really did work for me. The court. Um, I would have preferred someone other than sort of John Payne uh, prosecuting it. Well, defending it, I should say. But I. Uh, and it did feel a bit um the whole bit where the male turns up they they well that that's the interesting thing to me um and the 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 theological approach to this of course would would be to say that this that this is a miracle arranged by santa using mysterious santa powers yes but what what we see behind the scenes um you know the the judge is being told by his political adviser you've got to find a way to, th- to throw out this case because otherwise you are going to be the most unpopular guy in town. And <laughs> You're going to be the guy who proved there was no Santa Claus. Yeah, and, and then you are not going to get elected to the thing you want to get elected to next year. Mm. And similarly with, with the post office, you know, th- this is not... It, it's presented as, oh, the US Postal Service has decided what, what it actually is, is that one guy who's fed up with the Saxon Mail building up says, OK, well, here's this with an actual address. Let's just send them all to this address. It's nicely done because I, I suppose I always knew through the whole film. I didn't, I didn't know, but you know, it's going to be that kind of film where it's going to be like, of course, he wasn't really Santa, or was he? And I just, <laughs> I knew that was coming, and so, but I, it's nicely arranged that yes, it all makes sense, you know, politically in the real world, it does make sense, and and I do, I do enjoy the arguments with the that are coming across that you know at first. At first glance, of course he's not saying it's ridiculous to argue that. And they do convincingly sort of push it that way. I don't know how, how much the legal arguments hold water, but it makes sense that it goes the way it does, or I felt it did. The the thing that struck me as, as odd and disconcerting, and po- quite possibly deliberately, uh, is the way it slides from, oh, well, you know, this is a completely harmless thing for children, it doesn't really matter one or the other two, the stakes are now really high. Um, yeah, is this an argument about whether you should lie to children, or is it an argument about legal reality? Well, it's, it's all both. on a bit. <laughs> it's on slightly shaky ground because it, the film is about faith, I suppose, peeling it back, and and the, I think it's explicitly said, you know, you, you've got to believe in something that you don't have hard evidence for, which I. Um, I'm not sure I agree with personally as a as a scientist or a, a as not a religious person. I you know that can lead you some to some pretty dark, dangerous places. Um, blind faith, and how do you know blind faith from true faith? But it's it's interesting. I, I, I as a lot of uh, as we will do probably with our next film. I, I try and take it in the spirit it's intended, and I mm. try and enjoy it on it on its own merits i don't think the lessons it teaches us are particularly applicable in the real world ha, ha, i'm going to get my wife drunk so that she doesn't know what she's agreeing to oh my god that was that was awful that's not dark at all that yeah and that coming off the back of um uh, the the creepy i'm going to um uh, try and get in with this 12 uh, year old girl so that i can meet her mum and invite myself over for thanksgiving uh, yeah, there were some questionable um, actions here. Well, the, the was... thing that really struck me is, as I, I, I'm sure this wouldn't have occurred to anybody making it at the time, but Doris's character, and she she is presented up front as a competent organizer. She's getting stuff done where nobody else yes. can, 
Yes. And the entire narrative of the film is about showing that she is wrong. <laughs> that is not a thing a woman should be doing. Yes, my partner, who is who was a production manager, was very excited to have um, Maureen O'Hara. You know, as this actual competent, you know, she's good at a job, and mm-hmm. uh, and then. Yeah, she was disappointed to see that basically the whole film was basically taking her down a peg or two because um, she might be getting it right, but by gum, she's doing it in the wrong way and that's not good enough. And she's not married. I mean, shocking, shocking. Shocking, shocking. I, I suppose the film wasn't particularly judgmental about being a divorce, divorcee, particularly. Well, it was probably being quite bold in having her that, having that mentioned at all. I, as, as I said, the, the, the Catholic League of Decency specifically said that its members should be hesitant about seeing it because of that. Well, this is when the Hayes Code is kind of, um, sorry, the, uh, the screen... Uh, motion Picture the, Production Code. The Motion Production, <laughs> motion picture production Code is at its height, really, in, in yeah. these films in the 40s. So I, I was surprised. It felt like a... The, it felt a bit like the the brazen um, opening that we had in the films that we watched just before the the uh, motion production, motion picture production. I'm just going to call it the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code. <laughs> um, <laughs> it came into being. Um, yeah. uh, it's a surprise to see it in a film of this vintage, but uh, it doesn't go much further than that. But it's it's nice, and it's nice to have a strong female lead. But as you say, it's a shame that the whole film is about bringing her down from that. Uh, a lot of and. Um... The feeling I was getting was it, it's asking me to believe in the very specific um, Santa Claus brackets American, and that, that's why I, yes. I specifically go to say Santa Claus as opposed to Father Christmas, which, which yes. is what I was brought up with. You know, it is all a visit from St Nicholas. It is all the Coca Cola advert. Yeah, uh, that, I, that, that is just assumed background, and that, it's asking you to believe in that as well as its own. Yeah, this That's very great. specific, uh, yeah, as you say, this particular myth of this entity that travels to everyone's houses at the speed of light and fills their houses with presents. Um, yeah, which is hard to believe in general. Oh, spoilers, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I will say, though, a couple of, couple of crew notes, or cast notes. Um, the mother who gets uh, objects when... Uh, our, our Chris says, "Oh, you, you you can't get it here, but you'll get it for the thing that, that's that's not in stock." Yes, uh, is Thelma Ritter who had a that that is pretty much her native accent. She she ha- had a relatively short career in character parts. Uh, she is actually in uh, Rear Window, which we'll probably watch eventually. Oh yes, yeah, uh, I think St- we do, Stella yeah. the nurse. I, I just really liked her here. I mean, she, this this is yeah. an actor who knows she doesn't have an amazing range, but oh boy, she's going to go for it, and she does it very very well. Uh, the other thing is I, George, George Seaton, the director, is actually yes. we've actually seen a Riminal Memes before. Well, sort of, as one of one of the extra films that I watched, and I think you didn't. Uh, he adapted and directed Airport. Oh, did he? No, I didn't watch that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was for our airplane, one of our many airplane um, films that we watched. Uh, yeah, and that, this, that's pretty much the opposite end of his career from this. But he was still working. You know, twenty years. What's later. the name? I slipped my mind. What's the name of the? Main film it was lifted from airplane. It's like um, high blazes high. Um, zero the th- zero hour. There we go. Oh, that's a good film. No, it's not. <laughs> it's poor airplane. It's a film that has many holes down the side, from all the way to the start, from all the way to the end. <laughs> that is correct. Absolutely correct. Um, I mean, overall, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. 
Uh, I enjoyed it. I wasn't gripped by it, partially because I knew where the ending would go, and I wasn't sort of charmed by it. But I, I did. There were lots of bits that I did like about it. I think, and I think this will apply probably to the other film we've seen as well. Um, if one sees them as a, a cynical adult and um, with some idea of, well, you know, basic feminism and social justice and all the rest of it. Mm. There, there's an awful lot of stuff that's just from the period that trips one up and yes. stops one from getting into the swing of it. If I'd seen this as a kid, I'd probably have loved it, and I would probably now think, oh, that's that film I loved as a kid, therefore it's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> with that said, I, I, I think, um, yes, that is definitely going to apply for me with um, the next film we're going to talk about. I, I think ultimately for me, as this is a Christmas episode, it didn't particularly make me feel warm and Christmassy in a way that I'm afraid Die Hard does. Um, <laughs> it just, I know it's a joke that it's a Christmas film, but it genuinely does feel like a Christmas film to me, Die Hard. Um, and this, uh, possibly because it was released in the height of summer. I, I think partly that was because they got all the releases in the big cities in the summer, and then as it filters down to the smaller towns, it ends up more closer to Christmas is, might be part of the reason. It was actually, I think it, uh, Zanuck wanted it to be released in May, I think that may be, may be when it actually came out uh, it ended up being 11th of June 47. Uh, I think some of that may simply have been uh, in warmer weather, more people are going to go to the air conditioned picture house because they don't have uh, air conditioning at home could and be. for Where's some reason they're living in this country which is far too hot for normal people to live in <laughs> why do it's they do it? Everyone don't know. wants to stay out in the summer and not go into but apparently everyone does anyway um <laughs> well yeah i mean later on. we get the idea of the summer picture and then we, we've talked about that where we talked about jaws jaws was the one that kind of and cracked b- people regarded again. the summer as the dumping ground for the for the rubbish because as you say people were going to be outside that you know that's only 20 years later uh 30 years yeah and so let's move on to um the less deliberately Christmassy film it's a wonderful life mm. now i this uh, i did watch as a kid and i uh i uncritically adore it so i'm going to be <laughs> try and critical about it because i i can see it has flaws and problems um, my, my reaction I, was good heavens this is a, this is a dystopia but, yeah. <laughs> well, Let, let's see where we meet. <laughs> well, I yeah, we could we could we could talk about. I mean, this is um, uh, Frank Capra's "It's a Wonderful Life," and Frank Capra, even at this stage, this was released uh, the year before, I think. Yeah, um, it's a miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. It was right after the Second World War. In fact, it was James Stewart's first film after the Second after he'd come back from. Yeah, he is in service. It may just be me, but it, it certainly I, I appreciated his acting even more, and I, I'm pretty impressed with it anyway. When I realised, okay, yeah, twelve months ago, this this man was piloting a B twenty four over mm. Europe, being shot. Yeah, at. he was very. He ended up a general, though. I think he became a general. I think I think that was post active duty. Yeah, and that he, was he, sort of yeah. The, he he was one of those guys who was very much you know I, I will be one of the first to sign up because well he was, um, but he was very concerned that they, they were going to stick him in a, some sort of rear rational or publicity type job, and he really wanted to be in in the action and, and made sure that would happen. So, yeah, he was a genuine I I don't know about war hero, but probably you know he certainly 
played his part in the war. I think he advanced from, whether it was because he was James Stewart, but he advanced from like private to major just during the war. He may have ended up as general in the end, but he did. He'd done pretty well and was a genuine asset to the Air Force. But he sort of got back to Hollywood and his contract had expired with MGM, I think, and he wasn't sure what he was going to do. And then Frank Capra rang him up. He, he had a lot of doubts about um, acting in general, both before and, in fact, after this. Yes. Um, the uh, This is the film... Um, Ah, oh, sorry, I'm just thinking about George Bailey and that makes me feel happy, <laughs> so I've got, to, <laughs> I've got to control myself. Um, this is the, it's kind of a dark story, I find. As you say, it's a dystopia um, in many ways. Now, it's, uh, I suppose a lot of it is about small town America and what we've lost with small town America. And it really is the kind of, the classic small town. Uh, funnily enough, that uh, when I went to Providence, um, that is the, the, pl- uh, uh, Rhode Island, the capital of Rhode Island. It's it's the f- the place that most reminded me of Bedford Falls that I've ever been. It's sort of classic small town America. Now I'm sure that is it comes. Is that your idea of dystopia? This kind of small community? No, I mean I I know I've met quite a lot of Americans who who like to appeal to that idea of the small town as the best possible place where everybody yeah. everybody knows your name. Um. Unlike unlike the, the soulless big city where you can actually have some privacy, I think it has been very much abused to justify all sorts of horrible things yes. by trying to appeal to small minded small town people. That does not mean the idea that does not mean it's, it's a bad idea in itself. It just means you know this is not the unalloyed good that it's presented as here. Well, yes, here as presented, um, the decent working folk are all good at heart, and there is basically one uh, rich villain um, who is the banker, um, Potter. And, yeah, it it is a really misty-eyed view of, of how these things work. And, yeah, the privacy is sort of... Um, uh, the, the unanswered question, you know, like, uh, George can't even get off with his girl without someone peering out the window and saying, "Curse her, man!" So you know, I, I do yeah, understand that they're, they're, right. they're going they're going home for their aborted honeymoon because they were going to go away somewhere, and the taxi driver is commenting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I personally, yes, I prefer the anonymity of a soulless big city. But, but anyway, uh, it appeals to me. This is a story of George Bailey, and there is and, a. And lengthy... we're going quite out of order in terms of the way it's presented because we've got up, up front. We know we've got he is planning to commit suicide. Yes, and th- then we get, and then we we have something approximating a god, uh, send, yeah. send, sending an angel to deal with him. And as part of the briefing. Uh, we have you know, George Bailey's history up to this point. And that, what feels like it's going to be a quick flashback, actually comprises a good 75% of the film. It, mm. It's certainly an hour or so. Um, and this is not a short film for the time. It's a, is it over two hours? I think it might I be. I think so. Um, but it's, yeah, a, a good three quarters of that is George Bailey getting to the point where he... Uh, wants to kill himself and, and basically we then get the story of <laughs> how George Bailey gets all his hopes and dreams shattered through his whole life um, until he all gets he wants to, to do is get out of this tiny town and he is yes. never never once allowed to well, he's not allowed to because he doesn't realise Roger that he's already living in utopian paradise and if only he'd just stop and see it then he'd be happy <laughs> Con- conform he, he loved Bedford Falls 
<laughs> gin scented scented tear trickled down his nose. <laughs> I I and I I are a big part of why I love It's a Wonderful Life is well, two reasons I guess. Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, who are both, I think, fantastic mm. here. Um I my dad can't bear Jimmy Stewart so, and he's his attitude is well he always plays Jimmy Stewart. And he does. I mean, he's not a he's not an actor with a wide range. Um, but many actors aren't. Many film stars aren't. But he's very good at being the everyman. Um, uh, James Stewart kind of he's, he's kind of in the Tom Hanks category of. Have we ever had Tom Hanks on Ribbon of Memes? Uh, yes, Apollo thirteen. Oh yes, okay. But he, he's a very good everyman, mm. and and he's a very I agree good everyman. With that. I mean, he he, do, he does it very well as. Well. However you want to read it, he he is acting inconsistent in consistency with that. Yes. I mean we the last time we saw him was in Vertigo where he's slightly undercutting that um persona. Mm. But here this is where one of the films not the only one, I mean he's he's basically the same character in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington where he's an ide- idealistic senator. Um We're gonna have to watch Harvey, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, I've only seen Harvey once, actually. I, I like it, but I don't love it. Um, but I will, yes, I think we'll give it a try. Like any, uh, or, any... We, The other place we've seen him before is uh, in After the Thin Man, where he's third build, but he's very young. <laughs> and he's, and he's, ba- I... he's clearly basically doing what he's told there. Well, here he's, he's, he's Jimmy Stewarting it to the max. Um, um, we see the life of this man who always wanted to leave always wanted to leave small town America and go out into the world. But because he's fundamentally decent, he stays. He stays part, partly to keep his dad's business going. And then he stays to help his brother escape. Um, uh, and it's just, I mean, he's just a nice man, isn't he? Isn't he a nice man? Don't ruin my illusion. <laughs> he's trying to be nice. Well, he doesn't really have a choice, does he? Uh you're saying George Bailey has no agency in the film? Well, yes, but I'll, I'll come back to that because there's a particular way it happens uh, later on. Um, but just talking about the cast for a minute, so Don, Donna Reed, you mentioned, um, she she is actually quite new to acting at this point. Her, her film debut was only in 41. Uh, we, we've oh, talked, talked about From Here to Eternity, which, which I think I think would be her uh, probably best-known role. Uh, she did the Donna Reed show later in the sixties. Oh yes. So, yeah. And we have Lionel Barrymore. Oh yeah, guy I love to see. Yes. I mean, yes. Ba- basically, any film from nineteen eleven to nineteen fifty-three, there's a fair chance he's in it. I mean, any time you need a Scrooge or someone who is like Scrooge, I- I'm sure he was Scrooge. Actually, I'm pretty pretty sure he actually was Scrooge <laughs> at some point. That you get Lionel Barrymore, and he is. Um, you once called me a warped, frustrated old man. Well, what are you but a warped, frustrated young man? I just, oh God, just I love. <laughs> he, he's so great. Great, it? great example of a guy born at exactly the right time. I mean, he 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 started on the stage and you know, he did did a bit, but it was, obviously wasn't going to be a thing. And then film came along, and he just clicked with it. Both in you know nineteen ten silent and talkies so it's just great to see the the other person i was really surprised to see here uh is gloria graham 
Um, oh yes, as the uh, the town um, uh, fast I was girl. Say, thank you. I was <laughs> going to say bicycle, but fast girl. Probably the best way. I mean, Violet. She she does that thing, and Gloria Graham has a thing which she does very well. She doesn't do any other things, but she does that one so well that one forgives her for it. She does. Uh, there's a wonderful scene where basically they're just watching her walk down the street, and um, I don't know. It's that kind of era where I, a man cannot look at a beautiful woman without walking into a road in front of a truck. Uh, but I, I don't know. It works. <laughs> I forgive it because, I don't we, know, it we, works. We want you and... to wear this sack to reduce traffic accidents. <laughs> <laughs> As, uh, yeah, and, but, uh, you know, if anyone's going to do it, then Gloria Green could do it. I mean, she gets yeah. dumped on, but shrug. <laughs> yes, well, uh, we have H.B. Warner as Mr. Gower, who was... Jesus in a previous incarnation. Um, he plays Jesus in, oh, I forgot what film it is now. Um, uh, the, uh, the King of Kings. The King, yeah, yeah. And, we and he, have, he, he was quite a regular with Capra. Um, we have Uncle Billy, who's like the comedy character. Oh, who's that? Thomas. Tom, Thomas Mitchell. Um, and they were going to have probably uh, best Fields known for or... Gerald O'Hara in Gone with the Winds. Yeah, he, he did yes. a lot of supporting stuff. He's actually he's one of those actors that when you spot him, he does crop up in a lot of other films of the era. Mm. Um, and I, I, they're all they're all really good. I think the acting's pretty solid across the board mm. here. They all do exactly what they have to do. James Stewart is perfect everyman. Um, Donna Reed is the perfect. Um, the perfect, perfect wife, should we say? Um, I mean, she doesn't have a great role in the sense that her whole life is given over to George, really, but she does it well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lionel Barrymore is the perfect boo hiss villain. Uh, I mean, George gets to going back to the plot. George gets to the point of suicide because Uncle Billy accidentally hands eight grand to um, Mr. Potter, who. Uh, surely this is um, against the, the the motion picture production code because Mr. Potter steals eight thousand pounds and nothing happens to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not he, he has no comeuppance. He just gets away with stealing eight thousand pounds. Nearly causes the suicide of George Bailey. I, I haven't found any, any comments from the uh, censors, but uh, I did did get a bit of an FBI report. Um, with regard to the picture, it's a wonderful life. Uh, redacted, stated in substance that the film re- represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type. Said he would be the most hated man in the picture. This is a common trick used by communists. <laughs> in addition, redacted, stating his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show that people with, who had money were mean and despicable characters. I so. thought they didn't have upper class in America. I mean. <laughs> Uh, and then. Andrew Saris pointed out a few years later that it was a, a bit odd that they never noticed that Mr. Potter gets away with robbery without being caught or punished in any way. He just eats, flat out steals £8,000 to, to put Bailey's building alone out. Oh, just saying Bailey's business alone makes me happy. <laughs> I am aware I'm not objective here. There, there but... was a Saturday Night Live, um, obviously many years later, uh, basically an alternative ending in, in which... Um, I, I think it's George says, hang on a minute, I know where that money must be. Potter's got it, let's go get him. And the townsfolk rise up in a mob and go after Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, that would be that would be a happy ending to the film. <laughs> I suppose it has a good enough ending. Um, uh, Mar- Marianne uh, Johansson, fr- friend of the show, uh, actually says something very similar. 
that uh, you know, that, that total lack of comeback for Potter, it, it, it doesn't seem to fit anything else the film is saying. And it's, uh, the film is being very clear about the message it's trying to send, for the most part. Maybe the message is that, you know, the money... Potter's already got all the money in the world, and it doesn't doesn't make him happy. In fact, even Clarence... Uh, when Clarence... So, to get back to the plot again, Clarence, the angel, comes down because George... At this point, George is driven to his lowest, and Clarence then... From there, there, the... There's a trick to that. Because, yes. I mean, yes he, yes, he is going to commit suicide because one way or another the savings alone is going to go down, and he, the thing he's been basically giving his entire life for, uh, the, the uh, essentially unsecured loans to the people of this town so that they can blow the money on houses they can't afford... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Surely he should be looking into Billy's life insurance. Anyway, it, it's all going to collapse. Billy's the one that should go. But I'm just thinking about you know by the signs of the time that yeah he's a respectable guy. They probably wouldn't call it suicide. And we've just had the comment on his life insurance policy. I think he is also trying to use that life insurance money as his last act to keep the thing going one last time. And right. he's not even allowed to do that. Because suicide, bad. Well, exactly. Surely there, there will be a clause in his policy. Yeah, but that's the thing. Um, because of uh, the shame and um, societal attitude towards it, I, chances are somebody would have said, oh, well, you know, he slipped... They, the, the local judge or whatever would have said, oh, he, he obviously slipped on the icy bridge. That's not suicide at all. That, that feels to me like something that would have become a family secret from the Bailey family for years and years later and then some grandchild later on would find out actually George killed himself yeah so yeah I agree it's that kind of uh, sh it was that degree of shameful back then in but, fact they even mention it's illegal um, uh, in the film I think. but uh, yeah so as, as you say so he, he's up there he's contemplating suicide and Clarence the Angel throws himself into the river so that George will jump in and save him because you've got to save somebody who's drowning, right? Yeah, exactly. He's George. He's a good man. <laughs> then we have the the, the scene, uh, and again, I'm going to forgive it, but we have the, the scene where uh, we have a, a, a drunk looks at the thing that he's drinking and decides to give up drinking. Which is <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this was the first time you saw it, but um, it's, it's a time-honoured visual gag. And I'm, I'm happy for it. But then we get, I, I think, in terms of the impact it has, as, as you say, it's probably only about the last quarter of the film. Yes. Minus the, minus the bit at the end, in fact. But I think this is the bit that people remember, the thing that made an impression. Well, it's the, it's the shtick, isn't it, really? It's the one-liner. Mm. It's like, um, what would life look like if you'd never been born? Which is, you know, George wishes it and Clarence makes it happen. So George gets to see what... Bedford Falls would have been if he had never existed and that's that, that's the whole kind of it's interesting that it makes up such a small proportion of the film because as you say it's the it's the one liner that, that really tells you what the film's about and so you know the, the house that he lived in with his wife is still empty and abandoned as it was before they fix it up his brother is dead because he fell through a hole in the ice and George wasn't there to save him and so every on. man on that transport died <laughs> And oh. yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, in that sixteen-plane section, there were only fifteen planes because Harry wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one one thing that actually impressed me very much in passing. There's, there's a bit where George has just 
finally got to see his mother, the one person he's quite sure will, will recognise him. Yes. Because he, he spends quite a long time basically saying, don't you recognise me, I'm George Bailey, to everybody he meets. Yes, he does, yes. <laughs> he takes some convincing. But but when his mother, who has also become hard-bitten and so on, uh, fails to recognise him, he, he, he's stumbling away from the house, he, he does a, a goggle-eyed stare into the camera, and my, my immediate thought was, that's where Nick Cage got his shtick from. <laughs> it's, it's that face. Real, it's a real crazy... Yeah, it is a cage-rage face, isn't it? Or cage... Um, a cage overacting face. I, I mean, it's he's been driven to it. You go along with it, but I agree. Yeah. That's fair enough. I, I'm basically a stepped into film noir version of <laughs> Bedford Falls, as well, far as I can tell. Yeah, because then, I, I, and I think this is a very influential bit. Um, he's he going into the main drag of town, which, in yeah, in his own world, was was very dull and boring. And you know, there's there's a shop with a dress in the window that was that was there in the 1920s, that kind of thing. But no, now now it's 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 I, evil. I, I think it's evil because it's all I lively, and there are there are places you can get a drink. There's a black man playing a jazz jazz solo when he goes in the when he goes in the bar, um, which is no longer Martini's bar. I I think you mean wholesome when you say dull and boring. <laughs> yeah, that was the uh, thing. I, uh, that, that, uh, a thing that struck me. Um, you know, uh, what's the guy's name who's who's replaced uh, Nick? Nick has replaced Martini. And That's he, another he, thing. Where do you get off calling me Nick? Sorry. Yeah, and my, my answer was. Dude, your name is over the t- over the bar in lights. <laughs> it's a reasonable thing to call you. <laughs> I quite like the line. It's like we serve hard liquor for men who want to get drunk fast. I think <laughs> yeah, we don't we, need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Is that clear? Yeah, yeah. they get the best lines, don't they, in in Pottersville? I, I'm very tempted to to get that uh, burned onto wood and, and hung up over my bar at home. <laughs> uh, t- um, yeah. But yeah, the, the clear implication is is meant to be. Oh no, this is a terrible place. And you know, some some of it is is certainly um, because they couldn't afford to uh, buy and uh, build their own homes uh, yes. because the savings and loan wasn't them, wasn't lending the money on inadequate security. Uh, they're they're still paying rent to Potter for his horrible shacks. Yes, and some home of ownership, it's a folks. <laughs> Uh, this was sold to you by the uh, the British the British economy um, plan, um, but but also, uh, but it's uh, j- also just the think... little acts of kindness that you perform throughout his life. You know, old man Gower doesn't poison anyone to death by mistake. Uh, the the thing that did strike me about Pottersville was, okay, now now I know where uh, Biff Hill Valley in Back to the Future Two came yes. from. Very clear inspiration there. Yes, Hill Valley is the the other cinematic small town America that uh, that we get to see in in multiple different, and also we get to see a dystopian Hill Valley in um, Back to the Future Two. The the other film that is strongly influenced by this um, that I don't think you've seen is, is Gremlins, which is basically mm. is set in Bedford Falls, and Billy is the Billy Peltzer. How do I know that? Goodness me! Is the um, <laughs> is the <laughs> is the George Bailey character? In fact, he's even got the same job as George Bailey yeah, in some ways. So the thing that struck me that there isn't I'm, when I'm watching a film, particularly rather than reading a book. I, I'm one of the things I'm looking for is visual appeal, and we've seen some films where the yeah you know, the plotting characters weren't always terribly interesting, but it was gorgeously shot. And yes. Mostly here, that that isn't happening. I mean, it, it's not trying to be big and dramatic. It, it's trying to be realistic in terms of interiors and street scenes and whatever. Um, 
but there, there were two bits that really struck me. One, one was Potter, Pottersville Main Street. Uh, yes. The other is in the abandoned house where he's looking for his wife. Uh, the, the diegetic lighting, you know, the, the, um, the cop who's followed him because the taxi driver gave them the nod turns on a great big flashlight and therefore that's why we, that's why there is light in the house at all. Yes, yeah. It's, and that, that was just really nicely done. Incidentally, the cop and taxi driver are Bert and Ernie, but apparently that is not the name of why Bert and Ernie and Sesame Street are called Bert and Ernie. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I agree with you to an extent, but you know, we were talking in Miracle on 34th Street that feels a bit, we couldn't quite put a finger on it, but flat was what I said. And I, I don't think it's a wonderful life feels like that. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's realistic. It, it, even when it's indoors, it doesn't feel like studio to me. Yeah. It rarely feels like studio. That's true. So. Um, and so George realises that he has basically been the sole force for good. <laughs> so now he's got this huge responsibility of being the anchor of good uh, on the entire community. Um, wouldn't it be worse if like, you saw what life was like without him there and it was just either much the same or slightly better? Which is... <laughs> but it turns out he's been... A they they carted crazy life. Uncle Billy off, off to the loony bin well before he could damage the bank. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, even though the the loan got uh, the building alone got shut down years ago, um, so George learns that he actually, I I was always surprised. You know, the film's called It's a Wonderful Life, and it has sort of happy James Stewart and Donna Reed sort of on the cover, um, but it's it's really quite a dark story about a man whose life is frustrated and miserable until he gets to the point of hating it and everything, and it takes this kind of I don't know celestial intervention to teach him that he's actually got. A wonderful life. As I read it, it takes this kind of celestial intervention to teach him that he doesn't have a choice. <laughs> I mean, I, and the, I, the, I agree. The, it's that... all about giving up his dreams, his personal dreams, everything he's it, got for the, no, for the good it... of these small-minded people in the town. He is their permanent <laughs> tech support. He is the one competent guy in town. Well, isn't what, that a story why, why doesn't he ever get anything other than the oppressively perfect wife? Because virtue is its own reward, Roger. Because he is... Um, because... <laughs> I mean, I'm fighting a losing battle here, I can see, but I can't... Isn't it a story about sacrifice and honour and nobility? If we saw that... anybody else make a sacrifice, I would be more convinced by that. And the, 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 the ones who walk away from Bedford Falls. You know, it's well... a wonderful town because this one guy is constantly suffering. <laughs> is and that, he is that ever better than, leave? Yeah, is that leave? better than everybody suffering a little bit? I don't think so. Well, yeah, but he's got a beautiful, he's got a nice house. He's married to Donna Reed. He could he be having a thing with Gloria Graham <laughs> before she got um, before she got her cosmetic surgery addiction. <laughs> um, I have not seen photos, and I will uh, avoid doing so. I, <laughs> I, um, I, I mean, I accept. I mean, like a lot of these Christmas stories, in a way, I suppose the, the core of it is a bit. Um, I mean, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street did have a, a laudable goal in that it's a bit about hasn't Christmas become too commercialised? I struggle to, you know, take that seriously. Got news, you kid. To... We're going into the nineteen fifties. <laughs> well, they're also trying to flog a film at you and make you watch it. So, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's hard to take that at face value. I, I, I suppose It's a Wonderful Life is about, um, well, you could argue a few different things. Miracle on 40, 34th Street is about faith, I suppose. And It's a Wonderful Life, 
you know, every man, every person, I mean, it's all every man because it was back in the 40s, but every person leaves a hole behind. Everyone's life touches each other. And I I love that as a concept, even if I don't quite... Mm. I, I think it, it makes a much more convincing argument than 34th Street. It just doesn't convince me, but that's a separate <laughs> thing. I, I mean, I agree. I don't quite buy it, but it's so charmingly done. And I watched it when I was a kid, and it makes me feel Christmassy. But <laughs> for me, um, I just love it. But I'm not, I'm not blind to all this. I'm not blind to the fact that Pottersville, you'd probably rather have a night out there than, <laughs> than Bedford Falls. It's true. But, um, and oh, yeah, I would, probably wouldn't want to actually live in Bedford Falls where everyone knew everything you've been up to all the time. <laughs> that would be an absolute nightmare, which is probably why George hates it. But still... It warms my cockles, unashamedly. <laughs> Fair enough, I'm, I'm not going to say it shouldn't. A uh, couple of things I, I wanted to mention. Um, obviously, that at, in 1946 there's an awful lot of wartime stock footage available, and they make decent use of it. Yes. Uh, I, I was amused to hear a snatch of This is the Army, Mr Jones, which um, probably most people would... I, I think pretty much everybody would have been familiar with it at that point. It, it was a musical in 42, it was a film in okay. 43, and it was one of those, um, you know, you're, you're sitting in Los Angeles or San Francisco or whatever waiting to ship out, and you you will get to see this on the Army's dime. Right, so, yeah. So, uh, the film incident has Ronald Reagan in it, early Ron. Oh, I, do you know, I don't think I've ever seen an actual Ronald Reagan film. Um, <laughs> he, um, he's not that great. No. He's okay, but yeah. He, I mean, if he turned if he turned up as um, or Gen- General Ripper and Doctor Strange not playing it absolutely straight, that would be the way you'd expect Roald Reagan. Or I would expect Roald Reagan to play a role. Well, that would terrify me about him becoming president. Except it turns out there are much worse people to become president. <laughs> anyway, uh, that aside. So yeah, lo- looking at the reception and so on. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's probably fair to say that Capra went into this with a certain amount of immigrant fervour for I love everything about the US. Yes. As opposed to where I was, which was um, Italy, basically. Yes, he was an Italian. Um, uh, well, I don't, I don't think he'd ever lived there. I mean, he, 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 was, he was raised in Los Angeles from the age of five, but he, he, he still has that, you know, vague, vague childhood memories of the other place that we left. So yeah, he, right. he he certainly did that that whole thing of I'm going to be even more American than the Americans. Um, yes, well, the film was actually something of a failure. Yes, um, and as it was again released in the summer, but the summer before it was forty six, I think. Um, I don't think so. Uh, December forty six limited release. Oh, that's that, when then, it came out. Okay, then in the new year in forty seven in wide release. Okay, but, so just before Miracle in 34th Street. Yeah, about sort of six months. Um, it doesn't seem to have been particularly loved. I mean, the, the, the reviews at the time were actually mixed. Yeah, um, too schmaltzy and too uh, sugary. But it, it, it didn't attract a lot of, a, a lot of uh, positive attention. Uh, they they well, actually did the narrow release, ah yes, to make it eligible for the Academy Awards. Um, uh, which it got nominated for a lot, but one. One one minor, sorry if anyone's wondering at the Academy Award for uh, was it technical something or other, but um, yeah. it's not the one everyone's. It, if it had been in the next year, it would have, would have been up against Miracle for Thirty Fourth Street, which might have been amusing. But anyway, that's <laughs> an interest. I know Pauline Kale was was not a fan. I haven't read her review, but um, Frank Capra's most relentless lump in the throat movie. Uh, yeah, I. I 
I particularly like uh, Capra takes a serious tone here, though there's no basis for the seriousness. This is doggerel trying to pass as art. <laughs> Okay. Um, All right. Well, the, the, I I think I can find I can work out why it got popular, um, because of copyright shenanigans. It yeah, was it had a night of the Living Dead similar kind of uh, copyright snafu, didn't it? Yeah, it wasn't entirely clear at the time, but it, it was generally felt to have come out of copyright in seventy four, and so uh, television networks were were looking around for stuff to broadcast at Christmas preferably cheaply and um, gra- grabbed onto this uh, yeah because the, the, yeah uh, NTA didn't didn't renew the copyright properly right um, though the eventually well it's not nothing not clear who said what when but basically the the, um, the eventual legal argument was this film is a derivative work of the published story the greatest gift. And the copyright on that has been renewed by the author, and therefore this is a derivative work, and therefore it is still in copyright. Nya nya, give us the money. Yeah, <laughs> give us the money. But, be- uh, that was but a film because that, of that, uh, that was a story that never got published. though, wasn't it? He was he wrote he was a historian who wrote a story that no one wanted to publish, so he stuck it in his Christmas cards and did a round robin with it, and that's how it. <laughs> Maybe it got published after that. It must have been published. Uh, yeah, I, 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 he self published as a book as a booklet in forty three, and then it got an actual book publication in forty four. Oh, so that's how they got the derivative work. Okay, uh, but. That, that five to ten years when television stations were getting away with showing it, e, that that is the reason why it is not, not now forgotten. Yes, Be- it was because every year around Christmas, everyone watched it. So it became watched. a standard Christmas film. Yes, and that that is why it is now regarded as one of the classic Christmas films, just because it was, you know, pe- people who were around in in the seventies, eighties now think of it as that Christmas film I saw when I was a kid. And then by the time the um, copyright situation got sorted out, of course, it, it was established as a Christmas film, so you're going to pay us because you want to show your Christmas film, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the true spirit of Christmas. <laughs> um, well, I, I there also we got, are. Uh, Wendell Jameson um, for the New York Times in 2008 uh, don't be mean. Liked large parts of it, but he he felt it was doing a very good job of the the story of growing up, relinquishing your dreams, seeing your father driven to the grave before his time, living among bitter, small-minded people, being trapped. <laughs> well, he yeah. he regarded it as a good thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound great, but. Um... I, well, I would take that as George as a noble hero, sacrificing his own happiness for his town. If I felt he ever actually had a choice in the matter. Yeah. It, it's always okay, presented yeah. as, yeah, you can, you can do this selfish thing and everybody, everybody you know will hate you. <laughs> I mean, don't, just don't bother coming back to town. Um, or, or you can, you can, you can give up and you, you'll be, next time, next time for sure. You, you, you can get away then. It's just I for a few years. Mean, a bit harsh there. No one expects him to give away his honeymoon money to keep the bank open. But the building alone. Yeah. <laughs> but there we go. Um, I don't know that we're disagreeing too much. I, I'm aware that I'm misty-eyed about it, but I, I can see the, the flaws of it. But as a piece of film, it's it's very... It's nice. It's nice. Mm. Yeah, so, and yeah. I... 
as, as I think I said, I, I, I don't agree with the argument, but I think it is an argument much better made than 34th Street makes its, its argument. Yeah, I, th- I know you said you said Miracle on 34th Street was a very specific, this is the Santa mythology and it's actually happening. This, is, I mean, I suppose it's got some sort of specific Christian theology in it, but it's a much broader themed idea. I think it ties up much more to the American civil religion, um, which yes, is probably outside the scope of this podcast, but the idea that, you know, America has got to be the best country by its nature and <laughs> governmental authority ultimately derives from God and therefore is right. Uh, and so on. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, in America's defence, they're they're not the only people who've suggested that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it gets more formalised because of the whole um, synth- uh, synthetic mythology of the War of Independence. I think. But anyway, um, there, there is nothing here to argue with that, or to argue with anybody's individual religion. Yes. Uh, and so I think it gets more general acceptance on that basis. Yeah, it's, it's and it's less sort of specifically. Ridiculous compared to the miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> so, um, I mean, to me, It's Wonderful Life's obviously a masterpiece, and anyone who thinks it isn't is wrong. Um, a miracle on 34th Street, uh, no, not, not for me. I'd um, actually agree with you on both of those. Um, I may not like It's a Wonderful Life, I may not watch it again, but it does what it does very, very well. Yes, it, it feels like a more professional film to me than Miracle on 34th. Miracle on 34th Street feels a bit, um, not so much amateurish as, I don't know, cheaper and more TV movie-ish. Um, uh, oh, it's very good, but uh, it didn't work for me. Well, yeah. there we are. Well, I got, I got Roger to believe in It's a Wonderful Life. Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls. Ah, oh, i <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,